You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Grace. And today I'm going to talk about the case of Susan Saratelli, which I'm going to preface by saying I'm not 100% sure if this case is considered open or closed, as it seems as if investigators like have slash had enough evidence to charge the suspect, but by then he had died. So I'm not really sure, but either way, Susan's body has never been found and her family still deserves whatever small amount of closure that information would bring. And I also have to say that much of this story revolves around her husband, who is surprise, surprise, the main suspect. So... Insert shock here. I know, right? The husband did it. Right? Never. Um, Someone tried to tell me the other day, I think it was my boss, that it's like more likely the best friend that did it than the husband. And I was like, what sources are you? Like in general or in this case? No, like in general. Like that, that doesn't seem accurate. I don't know. I'm sure sources, Pete. Yeah, right? Come on. Let's hear him. He just says things. (laughs) Same. But it just so happens that Andrew's history landed him in the newspaper much more than Susan. So there's just naturally more information out there about him. And he's a freaking nutcase. In my notes, I have a lot of expletives. So I'm just going to insert nicer words for the expletives throughout. (laughs) And if I forget... Darren will turn you into a dolphin, so. Yes, exactly. (laughs) A la Spongebob. (laughs) But we do ultimately want the focus to be on the victim in these stories. So if anyone out there is familiar with Susan herself or who she was before she went missing, like I'd love to be able to add more about her life and personality to the blog, even if it's not included in the episode. I just I couldn't find anything. I hate that. Yeah. So the last time anyone saw 26-year-old Susan Saratelli, whose full name is Susan Marie Rath Saratelli, was Wednesday, May 11th, 1983, at her home in Long Pond, which is in Monroe County. Although this is according to her husband, who happens to be the main suspect in the case. So I'm actually not 100% sure about the last time she was seen by or spoke to anyone else. It's kind of like... um Anna Machievska, where like, you know, her husband says, oh, well, I saw her at this date. But then there's so much speculation about that actual timeline. It just kind of reminds me of of that case. Yeah, because it could have been much longer, but I didn't see anything about where she worked or anything like that. So from what I can see, that's the last day that anyone ever saw her. Um, Three days later, on May 14th, her husband, 21-year-old Andrew Saratelli, he was so young, uh, reported her missing to police. So even if she was seen that day, he waited three days. Yeah. Yeah. That is suspicious. But it was also the 80s. And? So, (laughs) well, we see a lot longer time, you know, pre-iPhone smartphones in um reporting missing people because you know they weren't updating instagram stories or facebook feeds or whatever every 20 minutes so i think we see that a lot in those older cases that you could much more easily go three four five days without communicating with someone it is 
a little sketchy that her husband wouldn't see or report for three days. Like that seems different, but maybe they had like opposite work schedules or I mean, like my husband and I are like that. If I didn't work from home, there would 100% be strands of three or four days that we did not see each other at all. I was basically going to say the same thing. I think it's weird for a husband. Like maybe it'd be different if it was like a daughter living somewhere else, but when you're living in the same household, I don't know. I feel like even if you're not there, there are subtle things that you know that someone was in your house. Like, Hey, he brought his lunchbox back or Hey, he took this to work or like something like that. Very true. Sure. Very true. Yeah. Yeah, because I was thinking that's the only explanation I could think of is if they had opposite schedules. But you're right, Chelsea. And I know it was the 80s, but I feel like my anxiety level would have been the same back in the 80s. So if I didn't hear from my husband, I would give it 24 hours before I'm like super anxious and at least calling other people. Yeah, I could see that. But I mean, this is also knowing that he's a sketchball. So, you know, hindsight is (laughs) 2020. The term sketchball. Mm -hmm. It got me. So he told police he had left their Long Pond home around noon on May 11th for Philadelphia and had returned around 6 p.m. to find Susan gone. A missing person investigation began and her family, who all lived out of state and her friends, were contacted. They all said it was unusual for her not to remain in contact with them. This led to suspicions of foul play at the hands of Andrew. And those that knew the couple said that Andrew was jealous and controlling and bragged about his violent past, even alleging that he'd been a mob enforcer. Two things. Number one, the mob keeps coming up in PA. So to every old episode where I myself said, there's not a lot of mob in PA, I was wrong. And (laughs) I'm just admitting my own wrongness here. Two, why do you brag about a violent past? Why is that a cool thing? I don't get it. It seems like it was very much part of his personality great just violence violence was his a personality trait fantastic and also monroe county is pretty close to like jersey yeah so there's you know like not that all italians are in the mob i'm not saying that but like the italian population in there's jersey a heavy and influence mob yeah. activity so and we'll see later that he had ties to Jersey, too. So but anyway, uh, in the summer of 1989, Andrew was being held at the Lehigh County Jail on unrelated charges. So unrelated to Susan's disappearance, police tried to interview him, but he told them, quote, if you guys are going to charge me, then charge me. I'm not saying a word. So he definitely did not cooperate with police. I mean, I don't know that that's not cooperating so much as it is just pleading the fifth. True. I mean, obviously, I would like him to talk more because <laughs> that's like, true. We want more of those details. But I mean, really, it is just kind of a jerky way of saying it. But essentially, he's just pleading the fifth. Like, if you're going to charge me, charge me and then you can interrogate me with a lawyer present. But I'm not going to say anything until that time. Yeah, I think I'm just seeing it through the lens of what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So Andrew Saratelli was already a convicted felon at the time of Susan's disappearance. He has served time for illegal gun possession, simple assault and reckless endangerment, and driving a sports car through a section of road work at a high speed and narrowly missing workers, which happened in 87. Would it be a different charge if he was driving like a truck or a sedan instead of a sports car? I don't know. I don't. It was just like, um... 
It just seems like an thing interesting that was added way in there. to write yeah. it up. It's just I've been listening to way too much, and that's why we drink. So my brain is just on like comedy podcast mode. So I apologize for it. Just my kind of paints today. a better picture, I guess. So you can imagine yeah. him like in his yeah. sports car being cool. Because so cool. he seemed to care a lot about what people thought of him. So, well, he's the coolest, clearly. Um, but also, that's really scary because, like, my uncle is a foreman for PennDOT and he almost got run over one time by this, like, guy Sports that was car? had a, I think it was a truck, but yeah, the guy had some sort of issue. I don't know. That goes without I, saying, I guess. The company that I work for, they, so I guess I subcontract and they obviously do road work and stuff and they, there are standards, but I, whenever I see like, make sure people are going through, they're never up to standards. <laughs> And I have to look at these standards and I'm the one that has to do all this. And I was like, this is why I get yelled at, but I'm not the one out there. They never follow yeah. suit. And it it's terrible because you hear so many stories of people getting hit. So what I mean, this is totally irrelevant, but I'm just curious, like, what are they doing that's not up to code or whatever? They're not standing. The, they're not standing the proper distances. And when you're getting flagger force, you have to submit a permit. So depending how many ways they're going depends how many flaggers you actually need. Like today, I was driving or maybe it was yesterday and there was like a three-way intersection that was involved. There's only one flagger and that was again, it's against standards. Now I'm assuming mm. it's probably because of like, no, they can't hire people and they need to get sure. the work done, but it's still, it's scary. Is that Ugh. a state regulation or is it company based? Do you know? I don't even understand it hundred percent. We contract and we do work for places like Pico, like their telephone poles. That's my job. Right. And then my company contracts another company to actually perform the work. But even for other contracting companies, too, that's not just us, not Pico. I think for like construction or maintenance and like other utilities other than your telephone poles, they still use. I've always seen them use like I've never seen another company use. So I don't know if they're like the only one they monopolize that business. Hmm. Um, but you do need to have someone there to make sure right. everyone's being safe. I know it's a big company. My best friend's husband used to work for Flagger Force, but I feel like I see a whole bunch of companies, but that might just be the Harrisburg area has more of them or uh, who knows. I know we service a big area, but I, I don't go to all of them. I've only been to local. Yeah. Whoever they are, this, uh, God, I need to think up new words that aren't inappropriate to use, <laughs> but this guy... <laughs> <laughs> almost ran over on a February morning in 1988. He was being held in the Northampton County prison when he ran from a loading dock where he was helping to unload milk and jumped into a waiting car, which was most likely operated by his girl girlfriend at the time. About a month later in Seaside Heights, New Jersey, police were called to a bar about a domestic dispute between a boyfriend and girlfriend. When they arrived, the bartender told them that the boyfriend had an automatic handgun. They went outside and found Saratelli pointing a handgun at them before he ran away. And then while police were chasing him, he pointed the gun at them again and then discarded it. And I just imagine he's like running, just like throws it. But he continued to run from them, jumping over fences and running over rooftops. This is like parkour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All I can think of is the office uh -huh. parkouring from the roof. And he goes right into that cardboard box. 
Yes. <laughs> but that's that is what I'm imagining. Yes, 100%. Officers caught up with him on one roof, but he jumped off and then ran behind a bank where he was tackled by an off-duty officer. And I'm just they mentioned he was off-duty, so like was that officer just in the right place at the right time? Because it doesn't, unless he just like joined in on the chase because he's like, I want a part of this action. So, I mean, I don't know how it works in the police world, but like, it doesn't matter if we are in an area where my husband has never run fire, if there is smoke and not so much anymore, but like when he was younger, when we first started dating, if there was smoke anywhere, we would have to like follow. And see, like, what was on fire and what was going on. So there could be adrenaline junkie police officers as well that just listen to, like, the police scanner all the time and could may be. have heard that something was going on. And so they went to that area or maybe they were just there. But, like, I know my husband constantly has either two or three different county scanners playing in his headset at his gaming computer. Like, he's constantly listening to it. And then I was thinking, if you're going to escape from jail in Pennsylvania, maybe go a little further than Jersey. But those are just my thoughts. Everything is legal in New Jersey. Yes, I'm quoting Hamilton. Oh, my God. Uh, but I guess if he had, like, mob ties in Jersey, maybe that's why he would go there. But it's yeah. just like, let me just go to the next state over. I mean, there are people that run from federal courts and just go to canada so smaller scale same idea running yeah. from state cops just go to any different state i agree jersey's probably not the smartest place but that's true regardless of whether or not you're running from the cops just avoid jersey in general i just imagine ted bundy like crossing states after he got it worked jail but for a little bit yeah, he probably shouldn't set the standard for anything, though. Uh, no. And I'm not sure what exactly Andrew was sentenced to, but he only was facing six months to two years in prison for escaping, which like just he, he was out for a whole month. And then he was caught because he had a gun in a bar <laughs> and six months to two years. I don't I'm just going to keep saying it was the 80s and let that be an explanation. I guess maybe that was six months or two years was just for escaping because I do know he was like charged with like other things okay. at that time. That so would make more that sense. That could be it. And then they just stack on top of each other. Almost 10 years later, in May of 1998, a former inmate at the Lehigh County Jail said that Sarah Telly had admitted killing Susan by strangling her in a jealous rage. He then apparently dismembered her body and dumped her remains offshore in Seaside Heights, where he had quote unquote connections, is what he told this inmate, supposedly. And those connections were confirmed uh, by investigators, but not publicly specified. So I'm like, hmm, mob. <laughs> and maybe we just don't know. That's probably not something police want out there, I guess. But I would think not. Whatever that information was and what the informant said was insufficient and police still couldn't charge Andrew for the murder. How convenient. I wonder if that's why it's not specified, though. Like, maybe it didn't. Like, maybe he really did have, quote unquote, connections in Seaside Heights, but maybe 
in like legal terms. That just means, yeah, he did know people there, but we're not going to say who they are because we don't find any reason that they're connected. Sure. So like, we're not going to out people who potentially could be in the mob and could come after us next. Um, if there's no actual proof of connecting to this specific thing. Investigators found women that Andrew had been involved with in the past, but they were all too scared to testify against him, which I don't blame them. Yeah. Uh, in the summer of 2003, Andrew's new wife filed a PFA, which is a protection from abuse order, just in case anyone didn't know. Um, so she filed a PFA against him. He wrote her letters from jail, accusing her of cheating on him, bragging again about his mob ties and threatening to scalp the guy he accused her of cheating with. Good luck. Really good luck. That's yeah. intense. <laughs> right? Like, do you think no one's reading these letters that you're sending out of jail? Or like she's not going to show people, even if it's not people in the actual jail, which it is. Like, they definitely go through and read what's going in and out of the prison. But even if they didn't, like, you think she's not going to say something to people after getting these letters? Yeah. So he's done all these, like, violent things, but it's not even circumstantial evidence, really. It's just, like, showing that he's a very violent person and perfectly capable of murdering his wife. But they really don't have any. There's concrete. no physical evidence. Yeah. Or any sort of concrete evidence that he murdered her. But it's just, like... Of course he did. After right. you hear all of these things. Here's a sort of interesting side story, but it's not completely pointless since it may serve as insight into how the investigation may have been handled or mishandled early on. So years after Susan went missing in November of 1988, Andrew Saratelli's parents, Camillo and Rose, sold their home to a couple, David and Jean Rogers. It was then that D.A. E. David Christine allowed investigators to go dig up the basement to look for Susan's body. So David and Jean were not pleased. <laughs> I would not be either. Yeah, they ended up suing D.A. Christine for $20,000 in damages. So let me explain that story. So according to an article in the morning call from July 24th, 1990, the Rogerses bought their home in November of 88 through real estate company Phyllis Rubin. At first I thought that was a person, but that's actually the name of a company. I huh. did not know. Interesting. Uh, at no time they claim were they informed that the home was part of a state police investigation. I wonder if you have to disclose that. <laughs> I don't, there's a number of people that could have told them about that, but yeah, interesting. Apparently the police had put in a request to the DA to search the home as soon as it was sold, which I'm guessing Andrew's parents wouldn't agree to let them search the property. Right. I'm guessing. So that's why they had to wait until it was sold, but no one told these new owners. Uh, yeah. That mm. information was not passed along like it should have been. Great. So they move in November, and by December 2nd, police showed up and told the Rogerses that they suspected the Saratelli's son of killing his wife and burying her body either in the basement or somewhere on the property. So... <laughs> Their plan is to dig a hole in the basement, but DA Christine said that the county would foot the bill for the repairs afterwards. So like, no need to worry. Everything will be fine. We'll dig the hole and then we'll put it back together. 
Uh, so they commence digging this big ass hole in the basement. And obviously, since I'm telling you this story, they didn't find any trace of Susan and Andrew was not charged at that time. So now the Rogerses, the Rogers family, have a large hole in their basement and nothing even came of it. Now, unfortunately, when D.A. Christine okayed this excavation, he didn't get prior approval from Monroe County commissioners before he assured the Rogerses that the county would pay for all repairs. Oops. Slightly more than an oops. (laughs) Slightly more than like a wine stain on carpet. Well, this is why you always need to get a contract and signed, something signed. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Now I get why they were suing him and not the county or whatever. As you said before that they sued him for the damages. Yeah. So weeks passed and nothing was getting fixed. And finally, David and Jean got real fed up and sued D.A. Christine, as well as the real estate company and the individual realtor that sold them the property for $20,000 each. Why? Are they required to disclose such information? Like, isn't it their fault for not researching enough? I honestly don't know. And I don't know what the laws were back then. Yeah, they've changed so much. Yeah. And I don't know if the real estate company actually they alleged that the real estate company did know, but I don't know if they actually did. I mean, maybe they they didn't. Interesting. And I mean, this is five years after Susan went missing, so I, I don't know. Uh, but it seems like the lawsuit was quickly resolved. I say resolved in quotes because in January 89, it ended and the commissioners paid the Rogerses $3,000 and that was it. That's not 60 grand. No. So, yeah, as far as I know, they didn't get anything from the real estate company or the realtor. And I wonder if that came from the fact that they agreed to it without signing anything. Like Chelsea said, you know, always get it in writing. And because the family didn't demand writing, maybe they had to settle that way. I'm wondering if they, I don't know how old they were, but I don't believe Mm. they had children. So if maybe they were like a young couple, first time home buyers, uh, (laughs) learning stuff the hard way. Yeah. Been there. Cause why, why would you even think to ask, you know, is this house part of a police investigation? (laughs) And then is there any chance people will need to dig up my basement (laughs) and the DA you know, local government is like, we're going to have to do this, but it's fine. Then we're going to pay for it to be fixed. And you're just like, okay, yeah, don't trust yeah, anyone. I'd be livid. <laughs> I'd be livid. Yeah. And I, I should have looked up what $3,000 then would be now, but I just imagine I have redone basements. I work for what a contractor. So uh, this was in 88. Well, the very beginning of 89. So $3,000 is about 6800 today. That's not a lot. If I mean, I, it seemed like the hole was really big. So to completely like fix it. Well, in comparison to what they were asking for would have totaled to <laughs> about 137000 and change. That's a lot. So. I mean, they were saying there was um, kind of like emotional damage too. 
Uh, they The couple claimed that the publicity surrounding the murder, as well as the physical excavation, had brought down the property value and will make it difficult to sell their home in the future. And then they were also worried about their own kind of reputation. Well, so, well, that's an error on their end. Honestly, when we were buying for looking to buy for a house, we were, I know I'm going to say this to Grace and she's going to know what I'm going to say. We were about to buy a house near Park Springs. Do you know where that is? Uh, which one is that? The development that is section eight over in Spring City. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we found a house. It was perfect. Uh, it was a little bit higher than we wanted. And the house had been on the market for over a year. And they were willing to drop it like $30,000 just to sell to us. Um, because like I had like a hard no pass line. And it was everything I wanted. Literally. I still dream of that house. Um, but I had to do my research. That's on you. This is an investment that you're making. This is a lot of money. Most definitely was probably a 30-year mortgage or 15 at least. Yeah. You're not doing your own research. What the hell is your problem? I <laughs> blows my mind because I'm pretty sure this would have shown up. You know what I mean? Like when I searched for that house, I could see everything. I saw that there was like, there was a bomb scare at the school down the street. There was gun violence. And the first thing I thought is, I buy this house. I'm never going to be able to sell it. Yeah. It was I, a lot uh, harder to research all that in I the guess 80s, that's true. Though. No internet for them. Yeah. But even ask your neighbors. Well, that's true. I also feel like nowadays, not even in the housing market, but just in like, obviously a lot more people are into true crime now and it's a much more public sensation and enjoyment that I feel like if you listed your house as a possible site of, you know, a murder investigation, you could actually get more for it nowadays like and not even because of the market just because it would be like oh it was maybe sort of kind of connected to a case i want to buy it and i say it kind of jokingly but also incredibly seriously like it's a thing no there was there was a house going viral because there was a jail underneath of it somewhere down south Mm, mm -hmm. i remember that and then there was one right near us. Grace is on Ridge Road. Um, it was a realtor listing and it had, um, I guess, like an upscale, um, like torture, like device. Yes, thing. I have, that was like a, just a couple of years ago. Yes. And it's funny. The guy who bought the house, um, he posted in one of the babysitting groups I'm in of his daughter and it was in the background and they're like, we found out who bought that house. Oh yeah. my Gosh. God. That was a beautiful house though. I mean, gorgeous. But that, that setup was a little intense. <laughs> so funny. Do you remember that, Sarah? I'm sure it like had to pass. It went viral. Like through your I probably Facebook. saw it, but don't have the connection to be able to pull it from my memory banks. It was so funny. But yeah, I mean, I feel like maybe people would pay now for like a house that someone was like murdered in or something, but like an active investigation, an active investigation still sounds like a pain in the ass. (laughs) Like, well, but if they already dug up the house. Yeah, fair. But yeah, no, you're right. I, I can definitely see it from all sides. But it's funny you said about the market because I have in my notes that they... If they still have it, like they could definitely unload it in this market. Like people would pay $20,000 above asking, even if it had like a giant hole and bad vibes. Well, most people are are making offers without walking through houses, so they might not even feel the bad vibes. They would just see pictures of the hole. 
And well, some aren't yeah. even getting inspections. Exactly. Imagine forfeiting the right to in, an inspection and then realizing there's and a giant you hole in your basement and bad vibes. Yeah. Always opt for the inspections. Yeah. But anyway, they got totally uh, effed. And it also kind of makes me question D.A. Christine's integrity. Yeah. Because, I mean, he kind of skipped an important part um, right. in that process. So he had become DA in 1988 and at 30 was the youngest DA ever elected in Monroe County and 30 in political like terms is like an actual child. I mean, I I can't imagine. I know I'm the baby of the group and I'm the one that's not 30 yet, but like, I can't imagine being a DA in another year and a half. Yeah. Like that. I mean, obviously I also have not studied any of that, but Like, I can't imagine if I were trying to be a principal or a superintendent, like, I feel like that's kind of a similar, you know, ranking there within the next year and a half. Like, no. Yeah. And even though he wasn't um, DA when Susan went missing, I mean, he is, you know, head of the, you know, police force and everything. Judicial system judicial system my brain is like melting but anyway he's got a prominent position there just a few years after she went missing so his kind of incompetence could definitely affect things underneath him july 1990 when andrew saratelli was in court for sentencing related to the simple assault and reckless endangerment charges he exclaimed you have a moronic da who digs holes in people's basements and that's why i'm having all the trouble isn't it called out And the judge responded that he didn't know what saratelli meant and that the court was not aware of the da's <laughs> iq level <laughs> Oh my gosh. There's just <laughs> these news articles that I'm like reading through, just like certain things just get like just printed there, just like it's like whatever a normal day. And have it's you ever just seen these random little things that he says? There's a post there's a post that goes around on Facebook that's like actual notes taken by courtroom stenographers. Oh, really? And like this feels like it would fit in there, right? <laughs> like you have a moronic DA who blah, 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 blah. The court is not aware of his IQ level. Like that just, that kills me. Yeah. And apparently he said that, Andrew said that after his lawyer had made some sort of joke about it. So it's just seems like a funny day in court. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> A humorous day in court. Ah, yes. So Christine is still the Monroe County DA, by the way. And speaking of records, he's the longest serving DA in the history of the county. So like, I guess he kind of has to know what he's doing. Like, right? (laughs) Or he learned along the way. (laughs) Or tenure keeps you in positions. Well, he has to keep getting reelected. That's true. So he must be doing something right. Must be doing something. But yeah, that just sheds a little bit of light on the county's judicial system. Don't make me say that word again. A Pocono Record article from November 2016 claimed that the case is closed because of the following. So in a sworn statement given by Deborah Wheelis of Henryville, PA, to the Monroe County DA's office in September of 2016, 
Her boyfriend, Andrew Saratelli, told her, quote, if you ever cheat on me, I will throw you down the hole where I threw my wife. End quote. Cool. Cool, cool, so cool, cool, cool. cool, cool. cool, cool yeah. Cool. Deborah said he also told her that he had told Susan, you cheat on me and I will kill you. So that didn't mince words. Didn't mince words. And apparently she did. And I don't know if Deborah said it this way, but it's the way it's written in the article with some, quote, big wig guy who had money. Okay. So Andrew took her for a drive and she never came back. So don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> that is all in her sworn testimony. Jeez. And it's interesting. Well, we'll get into it in a second. Uh, Andrew Saratelli died of a drug overdose in February of 2007 while living with Deborah, her two daughters, and his father. So that let's stop right there. And like, remember when I listed all the stuff this this guy has been charged with, and he escaped jail? Like, how is he not still in prison in 2007? Are they all just light enough? charges that like does he get caught right away and then released and then he commits another and then so it's just minimum sentence each time it, it's weird also isn't there a law maybe pa just doesn't go by it or maybe it's because it was in pa in jersey that like if you commit a certain number of crimes like you're just in jail for life with no parole or something really <laughs> never heard of that or is that just a law somewhere else i think you made it up Same. probably <laughs> I've never I've heard definitely of it. heard it before. I've 100% heard it like, before. Like, what is that number? Because he has I'm going to have. To made I think it's like number. three. Well, I'm just confused. Why is Deborah letting her two daughters live with him? Doesn't seem like the best person. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know much about her, but yes, ma'am. I found it. So, three strikes or three strikes law is a criminal sentencing structure in which significantly harsher punishments are imposed on repeated offenders. Three strikes laws generally mandate a life sentence for the third violation mm -hmm. of violent felonies. Um, and that comes from law.cornell.edu. Word for word, I just read it straight off their site. Um, so it looks like in some places it is a thing, but it is not mandated across all states. Does it have to be the exact same uh, crime, I guess, or just violent in general? It just says violent crimes. So maybe some of what he had were not considered, quote unquote, violent. Um, or but even it says, felonies, honestly. I mean, that's true. Yeah. Um, it does say that Pennsylvania does abide by the three strikes law. So it must just be something that his didn't count. He had enough charges, but not enough violent slash felony charges. Plus he died. What is this? Uh, 15 years, 16 years ago. So, you know, him going through the prison system even before that. So let's say 20 years ago, the laws could have That's been true. different as well. It says it was adapted in PA in 95. Oh, so well. it wouldn't have been adapted when he started committing crimes, but it would have been adapted before he died. Hmm. Well, so, somehow for he whatever that's out. worth, I didn't make it up. 
and living with a woman and her children. So the article says that around that time, state police had just started investigating Susan's disappearance as a murder. And I don't really understand that since investigators were looking for a body in 88. But maybe that was just local police. And now the state police are investigating. I just wasn't quite sure about the wording on that. Or I don't know if maybe this is when they were really starting to zero in on Andrew. But I'm pretty sure he was the prime suspect the whole time. So I'm not quite sure what they mean by this. But apparently when police got the 911 call that Andrew was dying from a drug overdose, they rushed to the home hoping to get a deathbed confession. But he died soon after at the Pocono Medical Center without having confessed to anything, which like... It's kind of like he's a terrible person, but to like get a 911 call and be like, we got to get there and see if he'll confess, like feels weird. Feels like like a TV show. Icky to me, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, I guess if you've investigated this long, you know that it's got to be him. I guess it makes sense. It's true. So Deborah also said that Andrew told her that he had thrown Susan's body down into the Centralia mine fire. But obviously, Hmm. it's too dangerous to search there. And apparently, there are reports of the mob dumping bodies there, which makes sense, honestly. Yeah. And it's funny, like not funny, but you, you know what I mean? But with my love of true crime and having like been to Centralia a lot, like I never considered that that would be a great place to dump a body. Yeah. I mean, when we talked about it in the fall for one of our, you know, spooky episodes, none of us made that comment either. Like it didn't cross any of our minds. Yeah. And it seems very obvious, but um, that's apparently where Andrew told Deborah that he threw her body. And I mean, how are police ever going to check that out? You can't even really right. get and close it, to it. At a certain point after enough time had passed there. I mean, that fire burned so hot. Right. It would have just incinerated like there'd be nothing to find after a certain point. Yeah, absolutely. And especially not now. Right. So at the end of the article, first assistant DA Michael Mancuso basically says that wraps up the case and that hopefully her family feels some type of closure. He also said one more thing appears evident. Her brutal murder and its inhuman cover up bore into the soul of her murderer, fueling his drug addiction driving his paranoia and hastening his demise. I feel like we're jumping to a lot of conclusions. Like I I feel like they don't even have proof. Like they don't have a body. How do they know it was a brutal murder? I mean, any, any murder is not a good thing, but I mean, like if she was poisoned, like that's not a brutal murder or maybe just because he was violent, they're making that assumption. But yeah, I feel like, I feel like they're adding adjectives to make it seem worse than they have evidence to show for, if that makes sense. Or at least evidence that they've released, because I I do feel true. by him saying this that I'm missing something. Like, I looked at all the yeah. articles that I could find, newspapers.com, Google. I just couldn't really fill in the blanks here. So maybe they, they do know more That's than true. what they're saying. So... I absolutely believe that Andrew did it and that he's a scum of the earth. But like, is this sworn testimony enough to close the case? And I'm like, is it does it not really matter because he's dead? 
And I, I know it might be enough to charge someone if he were alive, but not enough to automatically convict them. So I think that's yeah. very unsatisfying to me to have, be well, wrapped up. And we've seen cases before. Um, I mean, not not necessarily any that pop into my mind that we've covered, but just in general, um, there's a lot of cases where people have sworn testimonies that end up being proven false or that people renege on their testimonies. And like, it's not like a once in a blue moon thing. I mean, we see people admitting like, oh, I, I misremembered or, you know, getting caught in lies or whatever. So it's, I think it's hard to just take it on the word of one person and say, you know, oh, well, that definitely seals the case. Yeah. Like closed it. And I feel like a lot of evidence does point to it being him. A lot of circumstantial evidence does point to it being the husband, but like, if it's not, then it does still matter because there could still be someone out there who's um, abducting or putting others in violent situations or whatever the case may be of what actually happened to her. So it seems weird to just say like, oh, we think it's him, but he's dead. So we're just done looking. Right. Yeah. Seems like a big leap. But again, like you said, maybe they have more information that the public doesn't. But that was one of the big pieces that I wanted to talk to you guys about because I'm like, am I the only one that like feels this way while I'm reading this? Um, No, it feels like a leap. This is also the only article that I could find that really definitively says that the case is closed. Mm. And I... I don't know if there's anyone really left like advocating for Susan. Uh, she went missing in 83. So like some of her older relatives might be deceased. Um, I know like they lived out of state and it can be harder to advocate if you're you know not in the same location as the person that went missing or was murdered. Um, I just I, I mean, we saw that with Evelyn Cologne. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, now once once she was identified, you know, the family was was very aware. But that was a whoops, as I bang my microphone, that was a, you know, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania tied together case as well. Yeah, That's true, because sometimes, yeah, when it crosses state lines, it can get messy. Um, But I haven't seen any of, you know, those typical Facebook pages or groups that I've come across in some of the like recent episodes that I've done, I've, I've come across those Facebook pages. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's only one out of date photo posted of her online, like anywhere, just the one picture. So, Oh, wow. I'm just thinking there's not a whole lot of people left to advocate for her. It's heartbreaking. But according to the Monroe County website, the case remains open because it's listed as a cold case. On the actual on their actual county website. So I reached out to the chief detective for clarification, because that's who you're supposed to communicate with if you have any information. So I just wanted clarification for if it was open or closed. But like I haven't heard back. I'm sure he's really busy. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, But like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, her family deserves to know where Susan is. 
And I will post her photo and a missing poster I downloaded on Instagram and I'll post it on the blog as well. But it, like I said, it's the only photo that seems to exist of her on the internet. And apparently it was taken about a decade before her disappearance. So it's not even an updated photo of when the time that she went missing, um, which is really sad to me, but hopefully it could still jog someone's memory. Uh, so if anyone has any information, they're asked to contact Chief Detective Eric Kirchner at 570-517-3109 or by email at ekirchner at monroecountypa.gov. You can call Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers toll-free at 1-800-4PA-TIPS or the Crime Stoppers of Monroe County at 717-476-7700. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins. Production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.